This is where normal comes to die. Mediocrity meets its final demise, and the status quo is unabashedly dismantled. Welcome to Reinvention Radio. Now, here's your host, Steve Olsher. Alrighty, welcome to another edition here of Reinvention Radio. Steve Olsher hanging out with Richie Ote. What's up, Richie Ote? What's going on, Steve? How are you, my brother? I'm doing great. How about yourself? All right, all right. White White's holding it down in the studio. Kelly's got it under control at headquarters. And, uh, well, I think Mary Goulet is out doing her volunteer work in the world. And uh, we love her for that. As a matter of fact, our guest today will probably appreciate the work that uh, Mary does. But we won't go down the Mary lane because we've got a whole bunch more to cover here on our series on homelessness. And... Uh, it's we're only well this this will be, we're just past the halfway mark of our initial series here our inaugural series on uh on reinventing homelessness and first couple interviews really really i really really eye opening um man you know just 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 when you think you know a little bit you you realize you don't know anything yeah and uh and today's guest is going to continue the conversation here as we, well, let's just say we look to do our part in terms of raising awareness. I don't expect uh, us to come up with solutions, so to speak, but uh, now, now, maybe now, we will. Steve, I got to interject. Uh, Wade, yes, please. Right. The, the basic solution is make me emperor of the world. Oh, that's right. We got to make then, Wade. To, that's right. Make Wade emperor. Yeah, and then move on from there. So. I mean, again, really interesting conversations. If you missed the first two uh, interviews that we did with Brian and uh, with, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank. Why am I drawing a blank? What was her name? She was such a little spark plug, too. Annie, right, and and with Annie as well. I mean, just an unbelievable uh, spark plug there that's doing so much great work here in San Diego. Uh, But check out those two episodes as well, uh, part one and part two of the Reinventing Homelessness series and today on part three of the reinventing homelessness homelessness series uh we got silo moses joining us and i'm really excited uh to have silo join us because we we were introduced through a a mutual friend and uh i I had no idea as you really know and frankly that's part of the the purpose and the the why if you will behind doing this series to begin with is just raising awareness and opening up a dialogue and having a discussion and when you start even just discussing a topic, it's amazing what comes out of those discussions. And you get introduced to people who have a lot more expertise than you do. Uh, but just simply by saying, hey, I'm, I'm interested in doing uh, a series on this, or just having a conversation on this topic. Uh, and this is one of the ways that I was introduced to today's guest. Yes, Wade? Uh, Emperor Wade, yes? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just, you know, for a little bit of context, you know, just so I can and the audience can understand our guests a little bit better. One thing that has been revealed as we've had these discussions is there's different groups of homeless people. Yeah. Right? There's the systemic problem of nobody's making enough money to afford a house, and so, you know, one bad thing happens and you end up homeless. Mm -hmm. And then we've got the people struggling with mental illness. Mm -hmm. We've got, say, the vagabond that just doesn't really want to, participate in society prefers to kind of go at their own mm-hmm. um and then 
there's another group that I'm forgetting. So I'm just curious, which group is Silo mostly involved with? Yeah, well, we'll we'll find that out in a minute. I think in the third group, you're really talking about like homelessness by choice, right? Just people who are deciding, there, choosing. There are people that go, I just don't want to play the game. I don't want yep. an eight to five, right? Yep. And so you can give them all the social services in the world, and and this isn't a judgment call. Yeah, you know they've been there's been people that prefer to live kind of on of their own accord. Mm-hmm. We just got to figure out how do we deal with them as part of the bigger society and not conflate them with the person that's mentally ill on the street. Conflate yep. them with the person that the vagabond doesn't want the full time job. So sometimes they con- don't even need the full time right. job. They have the financial wherewithal to not be on the street, right. but they choose to be right. Whereas, and so giving them the solution or conflating them with the person that lost their full time job wants the full time yeah. job back. You know, just making that distinction. Yeah. And then one other thing, to your point, I think we can find solutions. The question is. Can we find solutions in one-hour conversation? Like, <laughs> well, that's the, a lot, like, a lot think, of one-hour <laughs> conversations, you know, kind of stacked on top of each other, I think, ultimately can get to the solution. But let's right. bring on Silo right now, Wade. Uh, Silo, how you doing, brother? Doing well. Thank you, guys. Good. And, and before I start butchering it throughout the whole hour here, is it Silo or Shiloh? <laughs> Silo, like a corn silo or missile silo. It is. All right, sweet. Yeah, I uh, appreciate you providing clarification around that. So now we were introduced uh, to one another through a mutual friend, and uh, I was not aware of your of your work. Uh, and so it's just it's awesome to see what you're doing now and, and, and just honestly pretty floored by your story. So why don't you, why don't you take us back a, a few steps uh, in terms of your experience uh, and, and why we're having this conversation uh, around homelessness and why you were the person we're talking to today, uh, and then bring us up to speed with what you're doing in your current work. Okay. Uh, that is, well, first and foremost, I want to thank you, Steve, for having me on the show. It's definitely an honor and a blessing. And you, Wade, too. You've been awesome up to this point, and I hope you're still awesome <laughs> continuing <laughs> forward <laughs> with our talk today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I'd like to start off first with what I believe, uh, and I believe that no one person should ever go hungry. Yeah. Everything that I do is based on what I believe. All the decisions that I make, everything that I, everything that I plan on doing in the future is all based on the fact that I believe the person who's standing in front of me should not go hungry. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that being said, you know, I came to that stance and that belief and, and vision because of where I've been. Mm-hmm. So... You know, a, a few a, a few years ago, I, I I live in Vegas. I've been in Vegas now for eight years, and a uh, few years ago, Vegas wasn't so good to me. I was working a nine to five job Monday through Friday. Uh, I was working in a, a call center as a supervisor slash manager of my own team, and my own team consists of seven agents. And we had we were a call center that called on behalf of health. Healthcare clients. Uh, so what that meant was, if you were, you know, a healthcare agency and you didn't have your own call center, you outsourced to us, and we made all those calls for you. And we called all your existing policyholders, and we even called people who we thought maybe we can switch over to your healthcare mm-hmm. plan. Mm-hmm. You got it. And uh, I worked there. Was doing really well. Started off as a phone agent. Worked my way up to supervisor. Worked my way up to manager. Then they gave me my own team. 
and we were kicking butt. I was always the first one in the office, the last one to leave, working occasional Saturdays. You know, I was, you know, driven. Our team was driven. We were making our boss a ton of money. Mm-hmm. I uh, walked in Monday morning, as I do. Office doesn't open till 9. I'm there at 7.30. And as soon as I walk in, the big boss is there. Now, this is the big, big boss, right? The owner of the company. And you never see him in the office. You know, the only time you see him in the office is if he's there to hand out commission checks or, you know, if he's there just to shake a couple of hands and wave hello. Mm-hmm. Right. And when I walk in, uh, before I can even get to my desk, he says, Silo, I need to talk to you. Come to my office. So I thought immediately, uh, one of two things. One, I am about to get one hell of a hefty pay increase, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like I've, I know my team's been rocking and rolling. I've been rocking and rolling. He wants to bring me into his office and say, you've been doing a great job. Here's a 10 grand increase in your salary, whatever that looks like. Or uh, I'm in some deep doo-doo and I don't know why. Yeah. Um, so it was one or the other. So as soon as I got to his office, um, he didn't even let my butt hit his seat in his office. He just comes out and says, I got to let you go. And I said, well, this doesn't make any sense. Why, why, why do I have to go? Why am I being fired? He said, well, I can't. Simply, I just can't afford you. Now, I'm working in a call center in Las Vegas. I'm making 40000 close to 40000 a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, but in Vegas, you can live okay on 40000 Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, well, I got to let you go. I said, okay, well, tell me why. Can't afford you. Okay, that's an easy fix. Uh, drop my pay. Drop my salary. Mm-hmm. Can't do that. Okay, uh, I have an idea. Put me on the phone with my reps. I'll make $10 an hour. I don't care. Just give me something. He said, I can't do that either. And I said, why? He said, well, if I was to put you on the phone next to your agents, it would confuse your agents it would lower their productivity because the entire time while they're supposed to be making sales, they'll be wondering why their manager is sitting next to them on the phones. So I had nothing after that. And he said, but here's what I'll do. You got to go home today. I got to let you go. But come back Friday and I will pay you for the week as if you worked here. Can't, can't come in tomorrow. You're done. But if you come in Friday, I'll have a check here waiting for you as if you worked the week. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I thought, okay, cool. I could do that. Thank you for something. Giving me something, right? Some kind of severance pay. So did you, you have, I mean, did you have any savings? Were you putting any of that money? I mean, you said you're doing pretty decently. Were, were you putting any of that money away? I mean, where, where were you at as far as your, 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 your life, uh, just financially at that moment? Yeah, so great question. So at that time, I had just had my son. My son was roughly four months old mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter, you know, <laughs> you can never be prepared for, you know, being a parent and you definitely can never be prepared for the amount of money you will spend as a parent. Yeah. And when he was born, I couldn't believe how much money I was blowing on diapers, baby wipes, baby powder, clothing. It was just insane. And yeah. at this time before he was even born, I was already kind of working paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when he was born, it was like, okay, what do I do now? He needs diapers or do we get the electricity shut off? Yeah. And your he wife, you you were married at the time. Your wife was working. You just had a girlfriend. This was her. I mean, like, I'm just trying to make sure I understand the, the financial. Yeah. I had a girlfriend. She was off for, I mean, her work 
gave her the entire pregnancy off mm -hmm. uh, uh, and with the option to be able to come back when she was healthy to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't pay her. So, you know, it was all on me to make this happen. Mm -hmm. So she's out of work. Uh, she took her time off. You're making about 40K a year. You have this kid. You're living paycheck to paycheck and you get fired. Kids four months old. You've got pretty much nothing now in savings. And what happens? Yep. So my job, I end up going there Friday morning for my severance paycheck. And I get there as early as I usually would. If I worked that day, I got there at 7.30. I waited till about 8.45. Uh, and as I was there, uh, I recognized that the maintenance crew was coming up. Maintenance crew came up and they had a big padlock in their hands. And as I was there, they put the padlock on the door to the business I worked at. Mm. And apparently end of the story is the same company that you know couldn't afford to pay me couldn't even afford to pay the rent in the building mm -hmm. yeah so i didn't get paid that day that day ironically i was supposed to give almost my entire paycheck to my landlord because i was already 30 days behind on rent mm -hmm. and 60 days behind on my car payment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. my Yikes. so my my landlord said you know, I called him up. I told him what happened. He didn't want to hear it. He said, no. He said, do you have rent? I said, well, you know, it's not my fault, but they, do you have rent? But listen, let me tell you, do you have rent? No. Well, you have till Monday to come up with over $1,000. If you don't come up with the money, I'll be there with the constable at 6 a.m. to kick you out. Hmm. And he came Monday at 6 a.m. And I opened up the door and the constable said, you have 15 minutes to throw whatever you can in a bag and get out. Mm-hmm. And that was day one of where my real journey begins, which was homelessness. So it's you, your girlfriend, the the baby. You guys are all you're all getting the boot. And I mean, does she have family? Do you have family? Uh, like, I'm just trying to understand what you did here. Yeah, great question. So, you know, I live in Las Vegas and uh, originally from Jersey. All of my family is back east, mm -hmm. uh, specifically mostly in Jersey and New York. My closest relative is in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. So I am the only family member that I know of that's this west of Texas. Yeah. Right. So and no family in Vegas, obviously, or west of Texas, no friends, no cousins, nothing. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I moved to Vegas, I literally just packed whatever I could in my car and I drove out here. Mm -hmm. And the woman that I had my son with was the woman I came to be with when I moved to Vegas. Yeah. So does she have family there? I mean, um, again, she just... does not. Yeah, no, she does not. Her uh, her family is in Idaho. Mm -hmm. So we essentially were here by ourselves in Vegas, just trying to, you know, make things make make things meet. Mm -hmm. And you can't. And again, I'm just trying to because this is. This is part of what we've been trying to get to the bottom of here in this series is can we address the disease as opposed to the symptoms, meaning uh, the symptoms being you end up on the streets, you're homeless. How do we stop this from happening by actually providing a cure to the disease? So this is a perfect example where the disease, so to speak, is you, you have no support system. And you run out of paycheck. You have no money saved. Yeah, the landlord kicks you out. Uh, the car gets repoed, right? I mean, you're, you're sitting there and you've got yep. you got nothing because you haven't been making payments. You haven't been bringing enough to, to make ends meet here. So is there no one that you can 
there, there's no one in your family. You, is, this a, is this a pride thing? Like, she can't pick up the phone, call somebody. You can't pick up the phone and call somebody and say, hey, wire me 500 bucks. Like, I'm, uh, like I'm really in a pinch here. Yeah, so at this time, it's just to be you know clear, at that time with her, our relationship was not the best. Mm-hmm. We, we were literally at the point of just separating big time. Uh, because before we were even, you know, thrown out of our condo, um, you know, I, I had pretty much failed her in every way possible. Mm-hmm. Failed her as a boyfriend, failed her as a new father, failed her as a provider, and I failed keeping a roof over our heads. Mm. And the day that we went homeless, she was like, I can't do this anymore. You literally lost everything. Um, and she said, I can't take your son down this route. So, and I agreed with her. Sure. And the day that uh, they kicked us out of the condo, I gave her the key, which was to the car, which was the only car that we had, which was already 60 days behind on its car note. Mm-hmm. And I told her, just leave and, and don't look back. And that's what she did. So she took the and baby. She yeah. So she took the baby, put him in the car and went. Uh, she drove. Just drove, live with family or do something. But. You so okay so now you're solo. Uh, the girl, the baby, they're they're gone. They're going to family or going to friends or wherever they're going. You're now without a car. You're without yep. a place to live. You end up squatting yep. in like abandoned offices and abandoned yep. homes and so on. Uh, and you've got no cash, right? I mean, I, right. Or, or did you have at least a little bit of savings you could tap into, or you had absolutely nothing at that point? No, you know I like. I do what I can that weekend to come up with rent. So I sold everything in my house that wasn't nailed down. Like I sold our couch, our TV, you know, and arguing with my, my son's mom the entire time. What are you doing? We need that TV. And I'm like, no, we need a roof over our heads. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, sold everything I can, I could. And by the time Monday came around, I had around 400 bucks. Gotcha. Right. So, but it wasn't still, it was not enough to cover rent. Mm-hmm. So I'm out on the street, no place to stay, no car, 400 bucks, mostly in dollars and nickels and, and pennies, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and no place to go, no one to call. Uh, and, you know, that money I did live on as far as food is concerned. You know, I did what I could, you know, um, but it, it went away very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you didn't feel like you could call a family member back in Jersey, back in New York, you know, Austin, Texas, wherever your, your folks are, you didn't feel like you could just mm, reach out to somebody and say, hey, I, I hate to put you in this position, but I'm like, I'm really just stuck here. I'm, I'm, I'm in a horrible pinch. We've been kicked out of the apartment, this, that, and the other. You didn't, you didn't feel like those were calls that you could make? In the very beginning, no. Because, in the, and to be honest with you, I did call someone, but before I, I give you the answer to who I called, uh, in the very, very beginning of the first week or two, uh, I didn't. It, I, like, I fell into the deepest hole of depression you can ever think of. Yeah. Very, very, very deep to the point where I, you know, felt, I literally felt in my bones what loneliness is. I felt it. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't tell me different. And, you're, and, and right? at this point, where are you sleeping? Um, squatting in uh, an underground parking lot. So... Uh, and that was rough because this is fall and it's starting to get cold outside. And all I have is a duffel bag with three T-shirts and one pair of jeans. Mm. So uh, that was really, really, really rough. Mm-hmm. And 
And there's so probably other, beginning. There, there's probably other homeless, I would think, squatting in this parking lot as well. So now you're worried about belongings, you're worried about your safety. Like, what's going through your head at this point? Yeah, eventually, the, you know, the very first day one and day two was this, this, you know, it was just this thing. It was like, this isn't real, right? It was just this coming to grips with reality of what just happened and where I'm at in life. And it was this whole denial of this isn't real. This is a movie. This is not happening to me, right? I'll wake up tomorrow and be back in my bed in my comfy apartment. There's no way I'm sleeping behind this dumpster right now using my duffel bag as a pillow, mm-hmm. right? There's no way this is happening right now. And every and next morning I woke up, I was still in that situation. And it, it, it literally got to me where it was like, no, this is reality. This is not a daydream. This is not a nightmare. You're not dreaming. This is real. And when it got to that real point is when I finally called my mom. So did I call someone? Yes. I called my mom. And first and foremost, I got to tell you, you know, I went seven months homeless. And during that seven months, I, I had my cell phone and I never paid the bill. There was no way. I just couldn't. I walked yeah. around with rocks in my pockets, right? And, but during that seven months when I was homeless, my phone, my cell phone stayed on. I can't tell you why. I cannot tell you anything, why it stayed on. Today, if I don't pay it, obviously it gets shut off by midnight. Mm-hmm. But during that time, I cannot tell you why, but my phone stayed on. So I, when I, I got to the point where I fell so deep into depression, sleeping behind dumpsters and squatting in buildings that I wanted to take my life. I was like, that's it. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. How old are you at this point? Uh, 32. So you're 32 and you end up homeless. Yep. Wow. Done. And, and I literally contemplated every, the, the exact way I was going to kill myself. I was going to throw myself into a speeding, in front of a speeding bus. Really? That's, that's the way I wanted to go. Because yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to, uh, you know, I was too much of a coward to like, do it any other way. Mm-hmm. I was like, Bus would be quick and easy, and hopefully he's going so fast I don't wake up a vegetable in the hospital. Yeah. So before I decided to do that, I, it was decision day. I was like, today's the day I'm doing it, but I'm going to call my mom and say goodbye. So I called my mom, and I said, hey, um, you know, she, she can hear my voice. You know, so wait, so you, you hadn't been in contact with your family throughout this whole seven-month period? Was this pretty normal for you not to talk to your family for months on end? No, not at all. Uh, and again, it was deep depression. It was guilt. It was failure. It was, um, you know, coming to grips with reality. I mean, it was so much I was dealing with Mm -hmm. that I couldn't even find the way to let alone describe it, but talk to somebody about it. There's no way there was just no way, but it was like mom knew you were having a baby. I mean, this is, this is her grandchild. Yeah, she knew. Yeah, she knew. And, you know, if she did try and call, I didn't call her back. You know, I mean, it's just, I just didn't want to talk to anybody, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Like, I just, I didn't want to. I didn't want to have to explain to someone what happened and why I'm in the position that I'm in. Mm-hmm. I didn't so, want to do mom, that. is dad dead at this point? Like, is he passed or are your folks divorced? I'm just trying to put the pieces yeah, they, together. Yeah, uh, grew up with a single mom. Okay. So, uh, okay. and didn't, and my dad left when I was two. So mm-hmm. as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, my dad could stand in front of me at a Starbucks while I'm waiting for my coffee never even know. and say, yeah, I would never even know it's him. 
and and mom had no uh, did, did mom have money like i mean what was that a viable option like could she have helped bring you out of this well i mean she is my mom so i'm sure if she had the money or not she would find a way yeah but it, but again it was just it was me i i did not want to it come to the grips of where I was at, even though I was there mm-hmm. and I was dealing with a deep depression, suicidal thoughts, you name it. So you go without talking to mom for seven months and because she, is she in touch again? I'm just thinking about from a, from a grandparent's perspective. I mean, she's got to be trying to figure out what's going on here. She's got to be trying to contact the mom, find the baby, find you. I, 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 I'm just not quite clear on that. Yeah, you know, our my relationship then with my mom wasn't that great. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. um, yeah. if we spoke, it was me calling her. Okay. You know, and you know, I made the attempt and still do today the, to minimum call every Sunday, whether she calls me or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So my relationship with her uh, wasn't the typical relationship you would think. You know, mother son relationship. Uh, for the most part, we. You know, we we had our yeah. challenges. So you so you call her. So you finally decided, okay, I got to bite the bullet. I got to call her here. Yep. So I bite the bullet and I call her, and uh, she hears it in my voice. You know, something is terribly wrong, and you know, she says, "What's wrong?" And I say, "Well, you know, I'm you know beeping homeless." I didn't say beep. You know, yeah, I, I, I got you. I'm, yeah, I'm beeping homeless. She said, "What are you talking about?" I've been sleeping behind you know dumpsters eating out of them and squatting in abandoned buildings and I can't take it anymore. And at this point, you know, I figured what she would do is what you were hinting towards. Hey, don't worry. Everything will be okay. I'll buy you a ticket back to Jersey. You can sleep in your old bedroom. You can sleep in your old bed. I'll make you chicken soup, whatever that conversation was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what I was expecting. Instead, she said, why don't you go to a shelter? So that will give you a little indication on yeah. the relationship with my mom at that point. Yeah. Uh, and when she said that, I realized a lot of things in that moment. The first thing I realized was no one's coming to save me. Yeah. I also realized that if anything was going to turn positive from this experience, this situation, this circumstance I was in, the only person I can rely on and count on is me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I hung up with her, and uh, yeah, I, uh, and obviously I decided to not throw myself in front of a bus, and I decided to do something with my experience, get mm-hmm. out of it, do whatever I had to do to turn things around. Mm-hmm. How, how much of it do you think was that conversation with mom? Because before you told us the actual how the conversation turned out, you'd made a decision you were going to jump in front of a bus, so it's almost like subconsciously... Maybe you didn't really make that decision. Maybe you were just about to make it, and then you talk to mom, hoping help's going to come. Like, because we're all everybody thinks help's going to come, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. It sounds like that conversation really was the wake up call, right there. Yeah, it, I like to call it the wake up choice. Nice, Be- because I did have a choice. I could have chosen left or right. Left was. That's it. Mom just confirmed it. I can now kill myself. No one's going to miss me. Mm -hmm. Or I could go right and I can go, you know what? Even though no one's coming to save me, 
I have the power to myself to save myself. And I want to see what that looks like. So I went right. Mm-hmm. And congratulations, by the way, on that choice. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, and it was, it, I can't tell you, but as soon as I made that choice, I felt like this fire come through my feet, up past my shins, past my knees, up past my thighs, past my waist, up past my chest, and shoot straight through my head. And it was this fire that was like, I'm going to do this no matter what. Mm. Like, no, nothing, nothing is going to stand away. I'm going to get back on my feet. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to do whatever it is that I wanted to do. I'm going to do it. And nothing's going to stop me. Mm-hmm. And once that fire hit me, I took off. Now, that doesn't mean the very next day I wasn't eating out of garbage cans because I was. That doesn't mean after I made that decision, I was no longer squatting and abandoning buildings because I still was. Every day I had to reinforce that fire. What was the first conscious choice that you made to do something different? Uh, well, conscious choice number one was to live. Right. right. Uh, I mean, after that, sorry. Like, you, I'm going to use the rest of this for a gym membership and so I can shower. Like, whatever that, what was the... Oh, yes. The, the very next... Um, decision I made was I need a roof over my head, like one that I can literally plant myself and think and create a plan and do whatever I need to do. Mm -hmm. So the very next phone call I made, and I can't tell you why, again, after I made that decision, this fire came through me and things just started to happen. And uh, I called my very first boss that I had in Vegas, my very, very first boss. This is like six years ago. There was no way I would have known if his phone number still worked, if he changed it, like if he moved out of state. I didn't know any of these things. But something in the back of my mind said, you need to call him. And his, his name is Eric. Like, you need to call Eric. I go, and I'm like at this point arguing with myself in my head. I'm like, why would I call Eric? I haven't talked to him in six years. And it kept getting louder. You need to call Eric. Mm. And I said, well, I'm not going to, I'm not calling him. Like, I, I'm not. And it said, you need to call him now. So I said, okay, if that means you'll shut up, that voice in the back of my head, I'll freaking call him. <laughs> so I called him, he picks up. Hey, man, we connect like six years didn't pass. And I told him my story, I told him what was going on, I told him, hey, man, I don't know if you can help, but this is where I'm at. And he said, hey, man, I was going to start this business. And I was going to start this business with a business partner. He backed out at the last minute. But I got premature and I rented a very small studio for our office, a small office space, a suite. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, I didn't pay to rent on it last month. I, don't, I didn't pay to rent on it this month. And I don't plan on paying to rent on that office next month. But I still have the key. And if you want it, I'll give it to you. Mm. And I knew what that key represented. That key represented opportunity. That key represented a roof over my head. That key represented safe sleeping at night without worrying about my shoes being stolen off of my feet. And I said, yes, I'll take it. He met up with me that day, took me to his little office suite, gave me the key. Boom. I had a roof over my head. Now the next step was find work. And in this little office suite, it was so tiny. It was literally 12 by 10. No windows, just a door, four walls. That was it. 
And the place was so small, so tiny, and in an area where most business owners wouldn't even want their address on their checks. This place, the only way that they could attract new businesses into this part of town was to give you a great rental rate and include all utilities. So when we went to the office space and opened up the door and he turned on the light switch, I was like, whoa, this place has light? Mm. And he says, yeah. And immediately I noticed that there was a really old computer on a table, folding table, and a corner turned off. And I looked at him and I looked at the computer and I looked back at him. I go, does that work? And he says, yeah. I go, is there internet on it? He goes, yeah. And I knew right there, boom, I now had an opportunity to look for work, reach the outside world, get on the internet, research, do whatever I had to do to start lining up interviews. And that's exactly what I did. Let me um, let me take it a step backwards here for a second. I just want to make sure everybody is clear on this. So for the for the months that you were homeless before you made the call to mom, before you made the call to Eric, what were you doing for food? Because I, I, your you know your sort of your driving mantra behind all of this is no one should go hungry. So what what were you begging? Were you getting any money? Were you panhandling? Were you you were eating out of dumpsters, eating out of garbage cans? Like I just I just need to understand. And sorry to put you through this here, but I just want to make sure that. Like we're clear on on exactly how you survived those seven months. Did you ever get robbed? Did you ever get? I mean, while you were sleeping, did somebody take your shoes? Like, did that literally happen? Like, take take us just gently through that, and, and then we'll move forward. Yeah, great questions. And oh, uh, and by the way, um, so there's a story behind what I'm about to say. Maybe we'll get to it later. But I just want you to know, want Wade to know, your listeners to know, if they really want to deep dive into the experience of what homelessness is like. I wrote a book, My True Story, and it's on Amazon. Oh, sure. And it's called, yeah, and it's called Better Than This by M. Hollis. That's the author name. It's my pen name. M. Hollis is simply Silo M backwards. Mm. So if they'd like to really deep dive into the story, whatever we can't cover here, yeah. they can go on to Amazon and get My True Story. And my True Story is basically my journal I kept when I was homeless. Yeah, wow. So, so to answer your question, so seven months you know, no human contact whatsoever with any other person. It's not like when you're homeless, people hold a door for you when you walk into a restaurant. It's not like when you're homeless, people walk up to you and say, hi, how's your day? Pat you on the back. None of that happens. As a matter of fact, it's a complete opposite. Yeah. People do the best to make sure that they don't even have to recognize you're standing in their space. They do whatever they can to just pretend you're not even there. Mm. And we feel that. Like as, you're, as someone who's homeless, you feel it. And it's the best way to describe it is it's that person who's walking down the sidewalk, comes to an intersection, sees you on the other side of the street, on that same side of the road, standing there waiting to cross the road, who then he crosses the street and then continues walking in the same direction on the other side of the road so he doesn't have to pass you. Yeah. It's that stuff. And that mm-hmm. stuff, that's the worst. That's the stuff that hurts the most. Mm-hmm. So, so food, what I did for food, yeah, yeah what I did for food was... I did not panhandle. I literally got very, very good at standing at 7-Eleven by the garbage can and waiting for people to get in and out of their cars. Now, why would I do that? I would do that because if someone rolled up in a sports car, you know how hard it is to get in and out of a sports car, especially if you're a big guy or a big woman or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. But when they get in and out of their cars, I would listen and I would wait. And I would wait for that sound. 
and that sound would be ding, ding, ding. It would be the change that fell out of their pockets. The change to them, which isn't even worth bending over and picking up, meant everything to me. So they would get out of their cars, change would fall out of their pockets, they would look down at it, not care, walk into the store, and when they walked in the store, I'd swoop around, pick up all that change from off the, the parking lot from where they just got out of their cars, and then I'd head back to the garbage can and do it again at the next car that just arrived. Hmm. I got really good at doing that, and I got really good at looking for change in, so in the cracks of sidewalks. So, and I used that change every day. Yeah. I, and I basically ate, I would, I ate the very small snack size Dorito bags mm -hmm. uh, that are like 99 cents and 75% air. Mm -hmm. That would be what I ate for the day. I got really good at chewing one potato chip 130 times before I swallowed. Because I found that that was a great way to trick my stomach into believing I would eaten more than I actually did. And that's how I survived. Mm -hmm. Until I had enough change to buy like, you know, a real sandwich or buy, you know, something like that. But literally, I got really good at chewing my food until it turned into paste in my mouth before I swallowed it. Mm -hmm. And you never and went to a, a shelter to get any sort of services at all? Not at all. Nothing. Not at all. Nope. After I made that decision to live, I also knew that if I wanted my situation to be a temporary one and not be a permanent thing, that I could not get into the system. I could mm -hmm. not learn the system. Gosh forbid, if I made a friend who was homeless, I still would probably be homeless today. Mm -hmm. So whatever they did, like finding a place to sleep on a Thursday night, soup on a Saturday, I did the opposite. If they were in one part of town, I went to the other side of town. Mm -hmm. And I didn't care if there was no resources in that side of town. I knew that if I was going to get out of this situation, it was going to take me and me only to do it and not making a friend to help me through it. And did you, did you bathe? Did you, did you have access to, I mean, you have to go to the bathroom. Where do you, where'd you go? Yeah. You basically go to bathroom wherever you can. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like there's, there's no rules. Yeah. You know, you go, you go to bathroom wherever you want. Yeah, I mean, at that point, um, if they throw you in jail for public urination. It's a roof over the head and three squares. So it's probably not a, a bad alternative, at least temporarily anyway. Yeah, but at the same time, too, I didn't want that either. Yeah. Like, I was doing the best that I could to do the opposite of what everybody else was doing. Mm -hmm. And for showering, I would just do my best to find gas stations that had open bathrooms. Oh, and yeah. I would go in there and use their paper towel that was pretty much cardboard and you know put it under the sink and try to get it as soft as possible, use the hand soap to wash underneath my armpits, you know, mm -hmm. private areas, mm -hmm. do my best to freshen up. Mm-hmm. So you get connection to the internet. I, I assume. Let's just fast forward here because we're unfortunate. And, and like you said, if folks want more of the story, they can they can pick up your uh, your book under M. Hollis. Better than this. Um, but fast forward here. You use a computer. You find you find a job. I mean, how do you even go on an interview when you've got clothes that haven't been washed in God knows how long, and you probably haven't gotten a good shave and a good haircut in God knows how long? <laughs> yeah. You do phone work, I, right? I guess you do a phone job. Yeah. So, uh, uh, my, yeah, you're absolutely right. My hair was blown out. <laughs> my, my beard was like a, a bird's nest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, I was wearing the same clothes for seven months, ripped, torn, dirty. I'm sure I didn't smell too good. Yeah. Uh, none of that mattered to me. As soon as I had access to the internet and I had access to Craigslist and I can create a resume 
I send my resume out to 200 people a day if I wanted to. None of that mattered. So I literally went on interviews. Eric would pick me up and he would spend the day with me dropping me off interview after interview after interview after interview after interview after interview. And I literally heard 70 ways you could tell somebody no politely. Yeah, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You know, it was uh, just not right now. Um, you know, let, her, let us get back to you. Let, my super, let me talk to my supervisor and we'll call you, right? If that's even if I got in the front door. Yeah. Because when I went on these job interviews, looking the way that I looked, smelling the way that I smelled, it was not common for the receptionist to come running out behind her table, her desk, run up towards me and go, you can't come in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, what do you mean? I'm here for the interview. And she's like, you can't come in here. So did Eric, I mean, did he, did he, uh, did he spring for a, a haircut and a shave and a, and a fresh set of clothes and let you take a bath at his house? I mean, somehow you no. had to overcome that. No. Nope. Nope. And I didn't ask mm-hmm. because all I needed was him to be a friend. So what was the break that you got? So I finally walked into this one place, interview number 71, and I got lucky because I walked into the door to, to where I was being interviewed and there was no receptionist. I actually ended up walking into a call center and I walked into, by accident, their, call, their, their bullpen, like their floor, mm-hmm. where all their reps were working. There was noise everywhere, great energy. Everyone was on the phones. Their face was in their cubicles. And when I walked in, the guy who interviewed me saw me walk in and he looked twice at me. And you could tell there was some kind of worry on his face, hoping that his employees wouldn't see me walk in or have me hit up his employees while they're on the phone begging for cash. Right. So he ran up to me and he was like, can I help you? And I said, hi, my name's Silo. I'm your one o'clock. And he looked at me and he said, you're Silo. And I said, yeah, that's me. And he looked me up and down and he says, okay, follow me. And he took me into his office and he interviewed me and he hired me. Can't tell you why, Mm -hmm. except for the fact that the job was commission only. So he wasn't losing anything Mm -hmm. by having me there on the phones. If anything, he was gaining, right? But he gave me an opportunity. Just like that key Eric gave me, he gave me an opportunity. And within 30 days, I was a number one sales rep at the company. Well, sorry, number one sales rep in the room. And 90 days, I was outselling the senior sales reps there. I was number one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you ended up obviously getting a little money stashed away. You finally got, uh, I'm sure, your, your own place somewhere. And... You've been able to do some pretty interesting work since you've gotten back onto your feet and helping provide meals. I mean, you, you, you through your initiatives, you've provided over 97,000 meals for folks. Take us through the work that you're doing now. I mean, I assume you still have a full-time gig and you're doing this, or is this all encompassing at this point? Just I want to make sure we're, we're clear on what you're doing now. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to say so. So yeah, everything right now is all-encompassing, and it took a ton of work to get here, but I absolutely love it, and it's so much fun. You know, uh, I got that job, became number of sales rep. I saved up every single penny. I eventually was walking to work. Then I saved up enough money to buy a bicycle and ride that to work. Then I saved up enough money and found a room for rent. 
Then I saved up enough money and bought a car, like literally rebuilt mm-hmm. my entire life all over again. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I had a little bit of money in the bank, not a lot, hundred bucks. And maybe when, as soon as I had a little bit of food in the fridge and I had a door that I can unlock and lock at any time mm-hmm. and a bed that I can sleep on, I decided that I was going to go out and pay it forward. And I was going to go out and pay homage to where I just come from, pay tribute. Mm-hmm. And I did that by cooking up a pot of spaghetti and taking that pot of spaghetti down into the homeless corridor and serving 30 people with that first pot of spaghetti. Wow. And to me, all I wanted to do, I had no idea how many people I was going to serve that night, if I was going to even serve anyone. Mm -hmm. But all I wanted to do was if I served one person, was to keep that one person from having to find food in a dumpster that night. That's all I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. That one pot of spaghetti now four years ago, has turned into an organization which has turned into a movement which has impacted our community, which has served 97,000 meals and has a last year alone had 5,000 people come down and pay it forward with us. Hmm. And it's just all in that mission of making sure no one person goes hungry. And we've done amazing things in our community. Not only have we served 97,000 meals, we've taken 99 people off of the streets Wow. Place them in permanent housing, permanent jobs. They've started families. They're having babies. They bought cars. They're getting health insurance. They're doing fantastic. Mm-hmm. Were, you, were you ever scared at any point when you were on the streets? And are you ever scared going into the homeless communities? Like, I think there's a lot. I don't want to say misconception because, as Wade said uh, in, in the opening here, I mean, there are people who are mentally ill, right? So there are some folks who have legit issues that you know i mean they could go off the rails at any moment so has that been your experience at all i mean you're a pretty fearless dude man i mean in in so many ways but were you ever scared when you were homeless and are you ever scared going into these communities to serve no you know at one point yes though you know before i went through my journey i you know, I, again, I said the worst part about being homeless is not not having a home or not having anything to eat. It's how other people treat you while you're homeless. Mm. And I was one of those people that would treat them like they didn't exist. And then I went through homelessness, and now I treat them better than I treat anyone else. Yeah, I you know because like I can relate, and I've been through the experience, and I know how hard it is. And at that point where I was homeless, I was definitely scared out of my pants it was probably one of the reasons why i decided to go left instead of right i started to go right instead of left yeah right because i didn't want to deal with anyone who i come across who might have mental challenges anyone who might have alcohol challenges drug challenges i didn't want to you know i didn't want that to be part of my daily um, existence mm-hmm. or survival so but today i work with them like there's nothing wrong with them mm-hmm I work daily in the community with people who have alcohol challenges, people who have drug challenges, people who have mental challenges, and I treat them like they're my best friend. So your so your organization uh, again, I just want to make sure we're clear on this. So we win three sixty is the is the website, we win three sixty dot com. But is that the actual name of the organization and, and, and do you do you run this as a nonprofit? So you are actually taking a salary now from that? So, all right, so the giving organization is Serving Hope LV for Las Vegas. Okay. So Serving Hope LV is our giving organization. We Win 360 is something I've been doing over the past year now, 
and where I am teaching other people who are just like me, heart-centered, business-minded individuals who own a business or want to create one to impact a social cause, mm-hmm. right? They also want to make profits, don't get me wrong, but they have a very strong social calling to why they're in business or mm-hmm. want to be in business. Mm-hmm. And so I started WeWin 360 as a way to help them and teach them to do exactly what I did to create an impact of 97,000 meals, mm-hmm. whether they want to do it in uh, education, they want to do it in equality, they want to do it in environmental causes. I teach them what I did to get where I am so they can uh, get to where they want to go faster without the learning curve that I needed. Mm-hmm. And you've been recognized, I mean, by Inc. and Entrepreneur Magazine and I mean, even the United States Congress, the United States Senate has, has recognized the work that you're doing. Uh, one of Las Vegas's top 100 men of the year, Esquire Magazine, put you as one of the top 40 under 40. I mean, it's it's unbelievable, man. If you had had this conversation with yourself, you know, eight, nine, ten years ago at this point, right, when you were in the thick of, of being homeless and trying to figure that out, I, I mean, could you even have uh, imagined what you'd be doing right now? No. If you would have walked up to me and told me all that 10 years ago, yeah. I'd be like, you're crazy. What are you smoking? Yeah, uh, yeah right. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I would not believed you. I wouldn't even believe myself if myself walked up and told me that. Yeah. So I, and, and let me just ask you this. So just going back to the solution versus the problem, symptom versus disease, disease if you will, what, what could have prevented you from becoming homeless? Like what, what can we put? Are there any stop gaps that we can put in place to prevent someone like you, like if you were Emperor Wade, yeah, you know, which uh, at some point he will be here. But if you were Emperor Wade and like you could put some sort of stopgap in place for people like you, you you fall under that one paycheck away category, right? I mean, right. and so what? What if you could just wave that magic wand? Like, what stopgap would you put in place to prevent someone like you who falls under that one paycheck away category from ending up on the street? Yeah, to to me, it's awareness, and it's awareness in the private sector. We, we, we need a lot of business owners who are in the private sector to actually bring awareness to the challenge and put in some kind of, um, you know, some kind of plan because the people that work for you are essentially one paycheck away as well. You know, I read a statistic that 75% of people today are one paycheck, exactly that, one paycheck away from losing it all. And knowing that as a business owner in the private sector or a small and mid, mid-sized business, we should put in the practice of saying, hey, these are the resources that are available in case you ever do fall behind on a paycheck. These are the resources that are available if you ever need free food, even if you still have a roof over your head. Because today what we do is we only, we only not only serve those who are less fortunate, less fortunate to us is those who are unemployed, underemployed, which is single mom, single dad, has four kids in a household, maybe works two jobs and still can't keep food in the fridge. And we also serve those who are homeless. Mm. And we serve them by providing them fresh food, clothing, hygiene, haircuts, love, you name it. But we also do a food rescue program that serves those who are currently in a home but are, have food scarcity challenges. Mm-hmm. And we provide them that food for free. So it's programs like this that you can implement into a small, mid-sized business that says, hey, these are the resources that are available. This is where you can, and, and even operate with an open door policy. Hey, if you need a loan because you've fallen behind maybe a week or two weeks, let us know. We're here to help. Something, right? Yeah. Because that's where it all began for me. It's not like when you're 
when you're home in your comfortable house, your comfortable condo, with your 56-inch flat-screen TV that you're on your $2,000 laptop Googling, what would I do tomorrow if I went homeless? Yeah. Let me do this. I'm going to kick it over to Wade. We only got a few minutes left, uh, and I mean, we could talk to you all day long, man, and maybe we'll have you back in our second series when we do this again. Uh, awesome. Get an update from you. But, Wade, let me kick it over to you, and then we just got a few minutes left. Yeah, here. I'll keep this quick. Silo, you didn't hear. Last week, and I encourage everybody to listen, I mentioned how this is all a result of industrialization. We figured this out in 1850, and the the extended family support system that everybody thinks is supposed to kick in, as your story proves out, in our world it doesn't work that way. Mom's in New Jersey. So I just wanted to make the point that this is why, as a society, we have to go, okay, it's not going to be the family. What is it? Right? And whatever that is, but at least acknowledge what is it. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to point out how much of your story is just about basic human dignity, but also, here's my soapbox. This is my opinion. I don't want people to be too enamored in your story, right? Because people go, wow, look at how well he did after all this shit happened when we should be realizing, yeah, but the shit shouldn't have happened in the first place. I right. can hear an amazing story about how someone, after they lost their leg, did all these different things. But how about if they didn't have to lose their leg in the first place? So I want us right. to be inspired by your, by your story, but also recognize you shouldn't be having to tell this story. We should have a society that helps you at that point before everything collapses. So I'll just stop it there. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me kick it over to you, Silo. I just want to give you a chance to kind of wrap up here in the last 90 seconds. So what, if you had any words of advice uh, around this subject of reinventing homelessness, what, what would those words be? Hmm. You know, I have a, a quote, and I'll, I'll end it with that, and I'll answer your question. I, I personally don't believe we'll ever end homelessness. I personally believe we can't. I personally believe homelessness has been around since we moved out of caves as cavemen and women. The second we started building homes, homelessness started. So our organization, you will never hear us say, we are out to end homelessness or out to end anything Mm -hmm. because we don't think it's possible. Mm -hmm. What we say instead is we are here to make the Mm -hmm. biggest dent in it as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Much more realistic. Making the dent in homelessness. Absolutely. So what can anyone do if you want to do anything to make an impact on the world? One, go do it. And two, be realistic about your approach. And how can folks get involved with what you're doing? Uh, WeWin360.com is the page. They can go there and um, they can actually submit for a free 15-minute consultation call. We can talk about anything they want as far as business and uh, profits and purpose and social causes. Uh, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well at yeah. Silo S I L O H M O S E S. So yeah. All right, my friend Silo Moses, really appreciate you joining us here on part three of our reinventing homelessness series. And uh, just as uh, as Richie said, man, congrats on deciding to go left instead of right, there, man. I'm glad you're doing the work you're doing in the world. All right, my friends, we will Thank talk you. to you next time here on Reinvention Radio for Emperor Wade and Richie Ote. I'm Steve Olsher. Take care. You just got dismantled. Thanks for listening to Reinvention Radio. For more information about the show and your host, Steve Olsher, visit ReinventionRadio.com. 
Attention coaches, authors, speakers, and business owners. Please pay close attention to what I'm about to say if you want to secure massive visibility fast and generate thousands of highly qualified leads without spending a dime on advertising or marketing. The easiest way to make this happen is to appear as a guest on the world's most popular podcast. We recently came across an awesome resource that provides detailed contact information for 240 new media influencers who are looking for guests just like you. It's called the Ultimate Directory, and for a limited time, you can get the preview edition of the directory absolutely free. That's right, for free. It's time for you to get the visibility you and your business deserve and connect with the world's leading icons of influence who can make you famous with the push of a button. Get your free preview edition of the Ultimate Directory right now at www.myultimatedirectory.com. That's myultimatedirectory.com.